getting lost in the Grand Bazaar, trading gold on the black market, and how to enjoy Turkish coffee. This week, we're in Istanbul. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we explore the food of the world one city at a time. And this week, it's lots of chili peppers, meza, and eggplant in Istanbul, Turkey. My guest is Ur Ildiz. Ur is a travel guide for Culinary Backstreets, a foodie tour company, and he's a native of Istanbul. His father even had a shop in the Grand Bazaar when Ur was growing up. So he's a great person to sort out the famous Grand Bazaar and the rest of Istanbul for us. Ur told me about Lamazun, or Turkish pizza, and we drink some powerful Rocky and Turkish coffee. And of course, we sample Turkish delight. Plus, Ur takes us out of the touristy areas of Istanbul for some less traveled areas of the city. What a rich cultural and culinary tradition there is to explore in Istanbul. But first, let me remind you that all the episodes of Destination Eat Drink are archived for free at radiomisfits.com. Thinking about traveling to Italy? I must have over a dozen episodes about all parts of Italy. Maybe South America? There's episodes on Lima, Peru, Buenos Aires, Rio. There's also episodes about New Zealand and Australia. So many places to catch up on at radiomisfits.com. There's also links to the show at destinationeatdrink.com slash pod. Destination Eat Drink. We're great to have you on Destination Eat Drink. Thanks for coming on the program. Um, before we you know, before we get into the actual food and drink of Istanbul, I just wanted to ask you uh, how you're doing and what is the state of tourism right now in Istanbul with the uh, pandemic going on? Who's coming to visit you? What kind of people do you get in Istanbul these days? Hi, Brent. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, the, everything is going well in Turkey overall and uh, in my personal life, I should add, uh, except for tourism, of course. But that should be getting better uh, sometime soon as well, we are hoping. At the moment, of course, it's down and quite a bit, down about 70% compared to the year before uh, or the 2019, I should say. But uh, in these recent months, the, the Regulations have been relaxing about the restaurants and other places. So we are hoping with the season starting, which usually starts picking up in April in Turkey, uh, more people will be coming. At the moment, uh, mostly Slavic countries with Russians leading the pack and British and the Germans are visiting at the, the visiting Turkey. Uh, overall, in 2020, we had about 12 million people visiting as compared to 45 million people the year before that. That's quite a decrease. All the news that we see points to good things for the summer of 2021. We're going to keep our fingers crossed for that. You know, when I see TV shows or I watch videos or read articles, usually the first thing folks talk about when visiting Istanbul is the Grand Bazaar. So why don't we start there? It 
to me, it just seems so massive and overwhelming. How do you, as a tour guide, make this into something that tourists can uh, digest and enjoy uh, when they come to visit Istanbul? It is uh, both of those things you just mentioned. It is uh, massive and uh, overwhelming, for sure, uh, which is the fun part of it. Uh, And for us, as a tour guide, uh, of course, we don't claim to take you all around uh, every single corner of it. That will take your whole trip, probably, because there are about 4,000 shops in the Grand Bazaar only, with 63 different streets dividing through them and about 21 different entrances to the place. So it's massive, covering about 500,000 square feet of a place. so we give a taste of it. We show you the highlights and it's always uh, up to the tourists themselves to be a little bit more adventurous and get lost into <laughs> the into that maze, uh, which I did as well uh, when I was a kid. My father's business was uh, pretty close to the Grand Bazaar outside of it. So we will, as little kids, we will wander off on our own into the Grand Bazaar. And when we get lost, one of the shop uh, owners will take us to our dad's shop uh, when we ask them for help. <laughs> you, you get lost too as a kid. Yes, of course. That's how you learn. What was your father's shop? It was in home furnishings, importing and exporting of home furnishings in old days, not anymore. What are some of the things that you take tourists to to see when they're in the Grand Bazaar? What kind of experiences could we expect? So as a good, uh, tour guide working for Kulner Backstreets, we do food tours. So our focus is, of course, on the culinary delights of the Grand Bazaar and the whole city in general. Uh, along with that, of course, we introduce the culture, the history, everything, uh, politics, religion, everything about Turkey. So when I take them into the Grand Bazaar, uh, there's one corner I love showing, uh, which is has been the same way. It's been going on for centuries where the people are trading currency and gold over the phone and just oh. exchange, exchanging all on the spot. Of course, not uh, doing it through the banks, they are not paying their income taxes on the income they make. Uh, <laughs> and instead of the handshake of the old days, they just use the cell phones. But other than that, not much has changed uh, throughout these centuries. And it's quite fun. These couple alleys packed with these men with two or three cell phones in their hand and just yelling out numbers every second, buying and selling. It's also uh, it's very much fun. I like to show that. And uh, there's many, many food places between all these shops. Uh, Grand Bazaar is a city within a city itself. There's barber shops, there's a little clinic, police station, post office, banks, everything you can imagine can be found in the Grand Bazaar. Uh, But when you look around uh, with all the merchandise, it's quite overwhelming, of course. Uh, You think that's just all the same stuff, but it's actually quite uh, different parts in different uh, corners of it you can find. When I think of Turkey and food, I often think of the spices that go with Turkish food. I would imagine there's all kinds of spice merchants in the Grand Bazaar and all over Istanbul. Describe some of the spices that we might see and some that we could maybe take home with us when we visit you. The, in the Grand Bazaar, definitely, there are some spice shops, uh, quite nice and fancy looking. But uh, as a food tour guide, I have to be honest and would recommend the guests to going to the spice market area rather than the Grand Bazaar part. The locals will never shop for the spices from the Grand Bazaar. Uh, For the locals, Grand Bazaar is more a place for jewelry, money exchange, uh, carpets, and some like tiles and some other knickknacks and antiques especially. 
But uh, for the spices, there's a certain market called the Spice Market, also a historic landmark place uh, that the get, uh, tourists should go to. Uh, all in and around it are full of spice shops. And when you visit one of those, uh, some of the regional specialties, is, one of them is called Isot, I-S-O-T, which is uh, chili flakes, chili pepper, but uh, it looks very dark, almost too black in color. It's actually made from capsicum, the same kind of red uh, chili pepper uh, that we use regularly, but uh, they put it through a different sun drying process, changing the color from red to black, and that process adds uh, the smoky flavor along with the spiciness. So that's a definitely must take from Turkey. Uh, another favorite one in Turkey is sumak. Many of the listeners or the tourists will be more familiar with that one in the Middle Eastern cuisine is quite popular. Uh, that one has a lemony tangy flavor to it coming from the sumak bush. But uh, for my guests uh, from the no coming from North America, I want them to stay away from it if they come across it in the wilderness. In North America, it's a poisonous one that grows, whereas in Turkey and in the region, it's an edible version of the same family of plants. Yeah, we were, as kids, we were always warned away from sumac in, uh, you know, if we went camping or whatnot, they'd call it, we called it specifically poison sumac. So I'm always afraid of sumac. You shouldn't be picking the fruit of it in North America, but uh, you can feel safe and enjoy it all you want in Turkey. It's a different variety of the same family of plants that's an edible version and has a beautiful lemony taste, which we like uh, using it over the salads and in some meat dishes goes well. Let's talk about some of the specific dishes that we can enjoy in Istanbul. And, you know, when I knew I was going to talk to you, or I did a little bit of research and I came across something um some folks refer to as Turkish pizza. You probably cringe when you hear the term Turkish pizza. Yeah, yeah. to make it easier, I sometimes call that as well. And I'm, I know I'm going to have difficulty pronouncing this dish. Uh, Lamajun? Is Perfect. That? You're a natural in Turkish. That's how you say <laughs> okay, it. Lamajun, <laughs> exactly. The origin of the word actually comes from Arabic, lam abejin, uh, meaning ground meat. Uh, in Turkish, we pronounce it as lahmacun, like you said. And it is like a thin, very, very thin crust pizza. Although we do have another dish that's much more similar to a regular pizza called, we just call it pita actually, like uh, you will call the pita bread uh, with uh, various toppings of the cheese, meats, and the uh, vegetables. But for lahmacun, it always comes with the same topping. There is no choosing of the topping on that one very, very thin crust. So you actually roll it into a wrap almost uh, when you're eating it to make it easier. That one comes with a mixture of the ground meat mixed with tomatoes, onions, and parsley. Then being baked in the oven, uh, once it's served though, you shouldn't just go for it right away, which most uh, of the guests have done in their home countries when they found it in some Middle Eastern restaurant. But uh, if you just have it by itself, it can be still tasty but a little bland at the same time so you have to add some parsley on it once it's served you squeeze some lemon juice you add those two uh, spices i just mentioned the chili flakes which are the regional one the dark looking one and also sumac then you roll it up and you enjoy at least two or three of those in one uh, sitting is uh, quite delicious 
Sounds good. And what about for our vegetarian friends? Is there uh, a version or something similar that we could have that wouldn't have the minced meat on it? A couple of the places now. Do, of course, do the cheese version uh, is a vegetarian option. Uh, and in general, Turkey has a rich cuisine with, in, with many, many vegetable dishes, especially uh, when you go for the mezes, which are the Turkish tapas, little plates of the appetizers to munch on. Those are mainly, most, mostly vegetarian. And in Turkey overall, even though the Turkish kebab is world famous, that's not something we eat on daily basis. It's mainly the seasonal vegetables that we eat on daily basis heavily. But in uh, most cases, we do mix a little bit of meat in there. So you have to, uh, of course, be a little bit more selective and careful to ask the ingredients to, uh, to see what's in there. It might be hidden in between all the vegetables in some cases. Hmm. You talked uh, about the mezzas, and I love the small plates. I love this way of eating because you get to sample a lot of different things without getting absolutely stuffed. So describe for me some of the different kinds of mezzas that we might get when we're in Istanbul. Boy, it's endless. Uh, <laughs> the mezza is meant to be had uh, alongside the, our favorite drink, the national drink called raku. Even though our current president would like to have iron, a non-alcoholic yogurt drink as our national drink, uh, people are not buying into that. Uh, we still claim our national drink as raka, which is uh, much like the Greek ouzo, made from the uh, distilled grapes, uh, the alcohol distilled from the grapes, uh, flavored, flavored with aniseed. So it has a strong licorice flavor. And meze is created actually to accompany the drink. Because when you're having raku, the motto is never on its own, never on your own. Always with food and with mm. company you are supposed to be enjoying it with. And oh, the good. best uh, company to raku food-wise is the variety of the mezes. You can just dine on mezes and not move on to the main course, actually, which is the best way to do with small bites. Eggplant, when it comes to mezes, eggplant will be used heavily uh, with 20 maybe different ways of it being served, mixed with tomatoes, mixed with yogurt, mixed with garlic, and uh, so on. Then some yogurt, we Turks, like the Greeks again, uh, we love our yogurt. Uh, so some strained yogurt with dill in it, with garlic in it, as a dip for the bread, goes well alongside raku. Uh, of course, hummus, which is mainly and actually an Arabic dish, uh, is popular topped with some pastrami sometimes or pine, roasted pine nuts uh, along with other things. Uh, those are some of the favorite ones. You know, I want to go back to when you talked about what you have with the meza, the raka. This is something that I'm familiar with from traveling in the Balkans. They call mm -hmm. it rakia there. And it sounds, I, it sounds like it's a similar thing. It's a distillate liqueur um, from grape skins and seeds and stems and whatnot. Uh, quite powerful but quite good. Exactly. Um, but you taught me something here, Ur, which is I did not expect that we would be drinking alcohol in Turkey because I think of it as a Muslim country. But you're saying that uh, Raqqa is a, you want to make it into the national drink. That makes me think that it's very popular there. It sure is very popular. And 
it's not me wanting to make it a national ring. It is the national ring. If ah, not. good. <laughs> At least half of the population will claim it. So, <laughs> uh, of course, politically, uh, the country is quite uh, divided between the conservatives and the secularists. But there has been a long tradition, and that's nothing new with the uh, Republican uh, Republic days. Uh, but way back in the Ottoman times as well, uh, Raku has been consumed uh, by uh, the Ottoman and now the Turkish population. It is uh, very deeply rooted in the culture. And it is something we share along the Greeks, uh, Bulgarians, as you mentioned, along uh, many other Eastern European countries, which all used to be part of the Ottoman Empire. So when we talk about the Turkish cuisine of nowadays, uh, it is a heritage of all these different ethnicities that used to live alongside each other. So what other dishes could we enjoy? We've got the Turkish pizza, we've got the meza. What are some other dishes that you really like to share with your visitors when they come to Istanbul? Very popular one, both with the Turks and the visitors, is one called mantı, M-A-N-T-I, which is actually something that can be found in various forms all over Asia. Uh, sometimes smaller, sometimes bigger in size, but it's mainly the dumplings, much like the Italian ravioli. Uh, although the dough is rolled out very thinly, cut into little squares with the minced meat and onion as the filling, then made into little pouches and then boiled. The Turkish twist to it is the dressing we use. Again, yogurt comes into play. So we use the plain yogurt, mixing it with some salt and garlic, use it as a dressing over the dumplings. Then we pour some melted butter with chili flakes, sumac and mint, and it's delicious. Uh, it's a comfort food for everyone and very tasty. Uh, on top of that, my personal favorite is one called karniyarık. Again, you made with the eggplant or aubergine, uh, which is lightly fried first, then you split it in the open and fill it inside with a mixture of the mincemeat with tomatoes, peppers and parsley, then bake it uh, further in the oven with the tomato sauce poured over it, so long, served alongside some uh, rice, and that's also very tasty. I'm glad to hear that eggplant is such a central part of the cuisine of Turkey. Um, the konyarik you just described sounds wonderful to me. I love eggplant. I think it's highly underrated. It just needs to be prepared properly. And it sounds like in Turkey, you can get eggplant prepared dozens of different ways. Exactly. You are correct. And what you just said is very valid with many of my guests who come to Turkey not liking eggplant. But when I encourage them to try a bite of it over here, uh, they change their whole uh, view of it, their whole perspective of it. Uh, it all depends on this. Of course, the season has a big effect on it. Uh, if you get it in the summer, uh, it's much more delicious. And also the way of preparation makes a big, big difference of, uh, on, of it. Uh, so you definitely shouldn't have a prejudice, even if you don't like eggplant. Give it another try when you're visiting Turkey, you will uh, fall in love with that vegetable. Let's go to drinks now, Ur, because I love Turkish coffee. Um, it's something to be, I, I always say, something to be savored, not to, uh, not to slam it, not to shoot it down because you'll get a mouthful of uh, coffee grounds. Um, but I love the strong Turkish coffee. Describe the, how we make, how you make the Turkish coffee and maybe some of your favorite ways to enjoy it. Where would be a place that we might go to enjoy Turkish coffee in Istanbul and get a real authentic experience? 
the preparation is done in very small pots on the gas stove and you put the exact measurement of the water with two good heaps of the coffee grounds but uh, of course you cannot use just any coffee grounds it has to be turkish coffee grounds meaning that it's ground very finely to a powdery dusty grade uh, finer than espresso or filter and you add how much ever sugar you want beforehand. Once it's served, you cannot uh, change the sweetness of it. You cannot stir it or mess with it anymore. Ah, oh, good point. Yeah. Exactly. So when you're ordering, you always specify uh, how sweet you like it, all the way from no sugar to little sweet to very sweet. And they prepare uh, accordingly uh, with different sweetness in different batches. Then uh, putting all the ingredients into the small pot, you stir it a little bit, then you let it set on the very low heat and you let it simmer forming the froth. Once it starts forming a good layer of the froth, you pour that into the cup, not filling up uh, the cup completely though. Then you put the remainder, your re remainder on the stove again and bring it to full boil. Then you fill the rest of the cup with that uh, other coffee. Because uh, you wanna keep, save that froth beforehand uh, to make sure once it's served, the customer knows that it's made from freshly ground coffee which always forms a thicker layer of froth and that they took the time to simmer it slowly rather than bring it to a very quick boil. So that's a, a sign of a good, a decent cup of coffee is the layer of froth on top. Uh, so that's how you uh, make it in two-step process. And my favorite place in town is a place called Manda Batmas in Bayolu, which makes the thickest, thickest Turkish coffee you can get, which is like sludge uh, all the way through when you're drinking <laughs> it, <laughs> which when it comes to Turkish coffee is a compliment, actually. The thicker, the better. Uh, so I highly recommend the visitors going there and giving it a try. So I love your description of this or because I'm an espresso drinker. And uh, what I love about espresso, the stronger, the better. And what you're describing is sounds like almost supercharged espresso. You're grounding the beans even finer, which means you can extract more of the deep, rich flavor of the coffee bean. I like that. Um, and I also like on the top that you get that little bit of foam, what they call in Italy, the crema, which is which is imperative to getting a good cup of uh, espresso or a good cup of Turkish coffee. What I wanted to ask you, though, is it occurs to me that I haven't ever had Turkish coffee with um, a layer of foam or milk added or anything. And I like it that way. Is there any culture of adding milk or cream or anything to your Turkish coffee? Uh, there's no such a thing, and people will give you weird looks if you were to ask someone <laughs> uh, like that. Even though now the latte cappuccino espresso culture is big in Turkey these days, uh, when you talk about Turkish coffee, no one will dare to ever imagine of like putting milk into Turkish coffee. There's it's okay. just a big no no, there's no such thing, <laughs> and that goes for the Turkish tea as well. Uh, unlike the British or the Indian ways, uh putting cream or milk into the tea is unheard of in Turkey, despite all the tourism and all these uh, spirits uh, visiting Turkey. So let's talk about tea a little bit. What kind of tea is typically drunk in Turkey? The most, most consumed uh, one, and which we drink on a daily basis of 10 to 15 glasses of uh, each person, uh, is plain black tea, what uh, in the Western world will be known as the English breakfast tea, just plain black tea. Uh, starting with breakfast in the morning, we 
drink about three, four glasses. But when I say glasses, they are very tiny glasses, tulip-shaped uh, glasses. So at, by the end of the day, when you drink about 10 glasses uh, of the Turkish size, you <laughs> end up drinking a grande from a coffee shop. It's about the same amount, but we take it in smaller portions. Small doses throughout the day. That keeps you going. Is the tea normally sweetened? I personally take mine without sugar, but uh, it all depends on the person. Everyone takes it differently. Uh, that goes for the tea as well. Tea never is served uh, sweetened in Turkey, but always with some sugar cubes on the saucer alongside the mm. tea uh, glass. So everyone puts, uh, depending on how much li- they like, one or two cubes. I, again, take my tea uh, without sugar as well. So we're talking about sugar, uh, which leads us to talking about sweets. Let's talk about Turkish delight, because anytime you go into a Turkish restaurant in North America, you're going to see Turkish delight. It'll be on the menu. It'll be served to you. I have to imagine it's much better and probably different when you go to Istanbul. So describe for me or what Turkish delight really is and well, you know what, what kind of ingredients are in it and what it's like and the culture of uh, enjoying Turkish delight. When do you have it and whatnot? Turkish light has a long history, about four centuries old, uh, in coming from the Ottoman times. Uh, the ingredients actually are quite basic. It's water, sugar, starch as a thickener, pectant, and then the flavors. Uh, whether fruit flavors, it can be herbs, uh, rose leaves, uh, of course, many nuts as well. Pistachios, walnuts, hazelnuts, everything. So all those put together makes uh, the Turkish delight, which is like a chewy jelly bean candy of the old uh, traditional style Ottoman times. And as you said, uh, definitely having it in Turkey is a whole lot different and better than having it abroad. Uh, that's another thing, just like the eggplant, many of the guests uh, are <laughs> shocked uh, by the difference and uh, how much better it is over here. Uh, the Nowadays, with the availability of all these other sweets, candy bars and everything, and chocolate, of course, becoming popular too. Uh, we don't consume it as much anymore as the older times, but during the holidays, especially the Muslim holidays, uh, which take place uh, two times a year, that's uh, the must-have and must-serve thing uh, when you do visit uh, your family members. Going from house to house, uh, you always get offered the Turkish light as the first greeting thing. And also you take a box of it as a present when you are visiting your elders. It's also popular alongside the Turkish coffee. In the older days when they didn't have the processed sugar to sweeten the coffee, they will put some of that along on the side to balance the bitterness of the coffee. Or you do food tours for Culinary Backstreets. And as I was reading Culinary Backstreets tours, I came across something that I found very interesting, a place called a uh, Bostan. B-O-S-T-A-N, Boston. I'm not sure how to how to say it. Boston, you said right the first time around. Okay. And describe what this is, because this is a very interesting concept to me. And also, I love the idea of the tour that you guys do with this. Mm-hmm. So, Boston literally means a vegetable garden, uh, which used to be all over the city when it wasn't so uh, populated as it is now. In the older times, agriculture was taking place right in the middle of the city. But uh, all those are taken over by the buildings and uh, roads nowadays. But we still have a patch of it remaining right by the ancient, ancient uh, city walls of old Constantinople, dating from the 5th century, the Roman times. Right alongside the walls, uh, people 
of the uh, the residents, the locals, have been cultivating vegetables for centuries, for thousand years perhaps, and still to this day, right in the middle of all the traffic, all this, all these buildings, it still lives on. Even though the municipality had some projects to change that area, thanks to all the uh, residents of the area and the activists, uh, we were able to preserve it until now. So one of our tours uh, takes you for a breakfast uh, to these vegetable gardens, still surviving from these ancient times, and takes you to one of the producers there. They prepare you a breakfast with some of the ingredients, of course, they grow themselves alongside other things. And we talk about uh, their story, about the history, and enjoy a delicious Turkish breakfast. This sounds like something right up my alley, something that you wouldn't get on a normal tour if you went to Istanbul. Before I let you go, or why don't we talk a little bit about some of these places that we should visit when we go to Istanbul to get outside of where the major tourist areas are? What are some of the other neighborhoods that might be less touristy that you think folks should not miss? There's a neighborhood on the Asian side, very close to the foot of the Bosphorus Bridge called Kuzguncuk, which is a very small, charming neighborhood, very green. Uh, has a similar feel architecturally to San Francisco with two, three-story buildings, wooden and brick. And also that area has a community garden that the residents of that neighborhood fought a very tough fight in the court to preserve it. They also grow their own vegetables uh, over there too. And alongside the Boston Vegetable Community Garden, there's many art galleries, boutique shops, restaurants, uh, without all these high rises and the hustle and bustle of the downtown area. That's uh, one area I will recommend visiting. On the European side, uh, alongside the water, called a neighborhood called Besiktas is very buzzing with full of young students and other locals just dining and drinking throughout the day, starting from 3, 4 p.m., going uh, in, late into the evening. It's a very student-oriented area, not very much visited by the tourists, but to get a taste of the local life, uh, it's a fun area to visit. Or to have a little bit calmer, uh, more relaxing uh, environment, you can go a little bit further up on the Bosphorus to a neighborhood called Arnavutköy, uh, which has these now hipster cocktail bars alongside the old time <laughs> <laughs> fishermen restaurants and the beautiful view of the water, of course. Sounds like a great neighborhood to go visit when you come to Istanbul. Or thank you for being on the program. Thank you for making this this sprawling metropolis. Thank you for making it accessible for folks who come visit. And we look forward to seeing you in uh, culinary backstreets in Istanbul real soon. Thank you for having me, Brent. See you soon in Istanbul. Okay, there you go. How can you not want to go to Istanbul after that? Ur is such an engaging guy. If you're thinking of going to Istanbul, I have a link to the tours at Culinary Backstreets in the show notes at radiomisfits.com. Well, that'll put a bow on this week's episode. Next week, we are in Taiwan. Until then, head over to DestinationEatDrink.com. This week on the website, I just posted about the statue of the favorite son of Lyon, France, a statue that's mostly overlooked and forgotten these days. That's at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. 
Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Turkish coffee chugging champ Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask, get the jab, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.